as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, I was also reminded of the suffering and sacrifice of those who followed him. You see, we don't often think about the apostles growing old, and that's because most of them were tortured and killed for their faith. As an aside, that to me is one of the most compelling proofs of the resurrection of Christ because this group of cowardly deserters who locked themselves in a room to avoid the authorities were suddenly transformed into people who were willing to suffer and die and in the process change the world. They encountered something that changed them, and to me that is the proof of the risen Christ. However, tradition records that one of the apostles survived to old age, and that apostle is John. In his old age, John lived in Ephesus, and Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin so many centuries ago, relates a story about the elderly apostle John. He writes, he used to be carried into the congregation in the arms of his disciples and was unable to say anything except, little children love one another. At last, wearied that he always spoke the same words, they asked, Master, why do you always say this? Because, he replied, it is the Lord's command, and if this only is done, it is enough. That is indeed the essence of John's writings, and we're going to spend the next three months actually looking more deeply at what John had to say. We began on Christmas Eve. We will culminate on Easter. Today we begin a four-part series that examines some of the key passages from the letter of 1 John. And then on the 31st, we're going to begin a series that looks at each of the seven miracles of Jesus that are recorded in the Gospel of John, specifically with the purpose that we might believe. That, I think, will be a really exciting series and a particularly good one if you want to invite friends, neighbors, coworkers who are interested in this Jesus stuff but have not yet found faith. John tells us he recorded those miracles specifically so that people would come to know Jesus. Now, although I am only going to preach on four passages from 1 John, it is a tremendous book, right? It's, it's incredibly short. It's only five chapters long, and yet it is beautiful and elegant, and it is rich with layers of meaning and connections both within the letter and back to the Gospel of John. I love 1 John, and so I want to challenge you to read it each week as we go along through this four-part series. As I said, there's only four short chapters, so you can either do it in one sitting each week, or if you want, you can split it out and do one chapter a day, Monday through Friday. If you don't already have a daily devotional time, this is a great way to start, right? You get your first four weeks planned, one chapter a day. I promise you that as you read 1 John over the next four weeks, every time you read on it and reflect on it, you will find something new and deeper for you. You will draw more and more from you. As you read it, I think you're going to see that John has skillfully interwoven three central themes. And like a rope made out of three strands, our faith gains tremendous strength as we live out these three themes in our lives. 
See, the way the letter is written is it's kind of, it's kind of unusual. It's not linear the way we like to think in, in maybe modern America. But it's really a, a spiraling exploration of these themes as they, as they intertwine, as they build on each other, as they reinforce one another. And the three themes are right there. They're right living, right loving, and right belief. And John is clear. If we can get these things right, then we can be confident and strong as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things I like best about John is that he always tells us why he writes his books. Right? There's none of this guesswork. Like, I wonder why this book was written. He tells you right out. He tells you in the Gospel of John. He tells you in 1 John. He writes it, in this case, to believers so that you may know you have eternal life. Right? This letter is written so that we can have confidence that our faith is genuine and that it's sufficient for our salvation. And I think this is really, really wonderful because in every Christian's life, we're going to go through different seasons and we're going to have times when we are feeling really close to God and our hearts are just burning with excitement about God and about what he's doing in our lives. Now, I'm not a terribly emotional guy, and so those times are not that often for me, and so I I really cherish them when they happen. For other people, it's much more common, but everybody's going to have some of those moments, but the reality is every Christian is also going to have times when, when God feels distant, and he's not distant, but he feels distant to us. Right? And, and our emotions and our feelings about our faith, they waver. They don't feel the same as they once did. And so we start to question everything. We even question whether God is listening to our prayers. Sometimes this type of season is described as spiritual dryness. I think the Puritans used to call it spiritual desertion. And it happens to all of us at some point. If it's never happened to you, that's great. But the odds are you will experience this at some point. And for some people, this is a real crisis of faith because they doubt the genuineness of their faith because they're missing that emotional feeling, that emotional connection that they've become accustomed to. And so for Christians who have based their confidence in their faith on sort of mountaintop experiences, on ecstatic or emotional moments, this is really, really painful when this kind of thing happens. But God can use those times those times of dryness, to take our faith to a deeper level. One, where our confidence is not based on our emotional experiences, but is based on his word and his promises and the person of Jesus Christ. And that shift in the source of our confidence is exactly, I think, the reason we have 1 John. And I think that's what makes it such powerful medicine when we are experiencing spiritual dryness. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. It is up all on one slide today, so a little easier to follow on the screen. John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, 
if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What we see here is the first of those three great themes in 1 John, right living. What it tells us is that right living gives us confidence that we truly know Christ. So if you have ever questioned or doubted your faith, or wondered whether you truly know Jesus, then this passage should be bookmarked and circled and highlighted in your Bible, because it is a tremendous comfort. Now, just to be clear, these verses don't say that right living is going to get us into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. They do not say that. They do not say that our behavior will earn our salvation. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't say that if we act like Jesus, we're going to go to heaven. It doesn't work like that. Instead, it works the other way around. This passage assures us that our salvation, our faith in Christ, will demonstrate itself through a desire to obey his commands and to live like he did. If we're obeying him and acting like him, then that demonstrates and builds our confidence that we have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So given that, I'd like to explore today's passage in light of three questions. The first question is, if right living is so important, what if I mess up? And John addresses this first. See, verse 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John never wants us to sin. We want to be clear on that, right? Sin, never a good thing to do. And so he's writing this letter so that we would be strong and confident and avoid sinning. But he's also realistic. He knows we're all going to sin on occasion. I certainly know I do. And the good news for us is that when we do, we've got an advocate. His word here is a legal term. It means we have a defense attorney who will stand up in front of the judge and defend us. And this defense attorney is not some newbie out of law school. It is Jesus Christ, the righteous. The language for the advocate is describing an ongoing, all the time, every time lawyer. He is our defense attorney every single time that we sin and are sorry for it. And this is not a free license for us to to just sin a lot because Jesus has us covered. It's not a license for us to abuse our privileges as Christ followers, but because the language here is describing individual sins, right? If we sin once in a while. It's not talking about a pattern where we sin over and over again and, and don't get too upset about it. It's not talking about a situation where we embrace our sin and celebrate it, right? We're, we're in a culture that celebrates sin, and that's not what's being talked about here. That's not why we have an advocate, right? We have an advocate 
for what John is talking about here, sins that we fall into occasionally, the, the kind that happen on a bad day where we get caught in a moment of weakness and as soon as we realize it or someone points it out to us, we are, we are sorry for it and, and genuinely don't want to repeat it. And when that happens, we always have Jesus ready to defend us before the judge. And, and the reason for this, right? I mean, this is exciting because he is easily the greatest defense attorney of all time. Because verse 2 says, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, I don't know about you, but I do not use propitiation in normal conversation. I doubt anyone is going to go to school or work tomorrow and be like, hey, what did you do over the weekend? I was propitiating. So let me make sure we understand what this word means. It means that Jesus is the blood sacrifice needed to turn away the anger of God. That's what makes him the greatest defense attorney ever. And we don't like to think about or talk about God being angry these days. It's very unpopular, right? The cool thing is only to talk about God loving. And he does love. God is love. But we miss out on a significant portion of God if we do not understand that sin makes him angry. We need to recognize that when we sin, we directly disobey God. And even those little sins that don't hurt anybody, are direct disobedience to the perfect creator of the universe. And so he is rightfully angry about them. Even if they only hurt us, he made us. He's invested in us. We carry his image, and as Christians, his spirit lives within us, and our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So to turn that anger away requires the sacrifice of innocent blood. That is the consistent testimony of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And Jesus Christ, the righteous, is the blood sacrifice that turns God's rightful anger into perfect love. And because Jesus is perfectly righteous, his sacrifice is enough to pay for all of the sins of the world. Every person who turns to him is Lord and Savior. 1 John 1.7 assures us that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And that's exactly what we just remembered and celebrated when we observed the Lord's Supper. But the point of this letter is not to say, okay, you can sin, Jesus has you covered, is it? He says it's not. He says it's so that we wouldn't sin. The point is to get us to live correctly, because right living gives us confidence that we really know Christ. So the second key question that I always have when I deal with this passage is, what does right living mean? And I think there are two answers in the verse. The first is that we keep Jesus' commandments. Verse 3 tells us, and by this we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. That's the proof. And this phrase, keep his commandments, is describing an ongoing habit, a pattern for our lives, a characteristic of our lives, that we obey the commandments of Jesus. 
It does not require us to perfectly obey them all the time because verse 1 covered what happens when we mess up. But it needs to be the regular and consistent pattern of our lives. And what are these commandments? Well, I think John tells us a little bit later in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Now, for the last month, as we went through the Advent season, we talked about the fact that name is identity. So when he says, believe in the name of Jesus Christ, he means believe in the identity of Jesus Christ. Anybody remember what the name Jesus means? Shout it out, really. The Lord saves. Exactly. We know that the Christ means the anointed Messiah, the rightful king of the world. And then there's that Jesus is the Son of God. So the things we have to believe, according to John, Jesus is the Son of God, the king of the world, and our salvation. Then we have to love one another. So the essence of right living is right belief and right loving. Those are the other two themes from 1 John. So I think we begin to see how each theme builds and relates to the others. Now the second aspect of right living is in verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. Now I've read this verse a lot over the last whatever, 20 years, I guess, since I got started reading the Bible, seriously. But a couple years ago, that verse really grabbed a hold of me. It's very convicting. Because if we are say that we're Christians, then we're supposed to walk in the same way he walked. And, and biblically, when it talks about walking, it's really talking about the way you live your life. It's not just talking about putting on sandals and walking in a desert. And I would think that we would all agree that that is quite a bit more complicated than just obeying a few commandments. To walk in the way that he walked is about our actions and our attitudes and our relationship to God and our relationship to other people. It is about our prayer life and our worship life and our work life and our home life, and our thought life, and our Facebook life, and our Instagram life, and our church meeting life, and our blogging life. It requires also that we really know how he walked. Well, the good news is we have four Gospels that tell us how he walked. And there's a whole bunch of letters and other books that help us understand and apply how he walked. But if we're going to walk like he walked, it means that we need to be reading them and reflecting on them and talking about them a lot. Because, you know, this is a big book. If you are not constantly taking in what it has to say, I can assure you it is leaving your mind. There's no standing still as a Christian. You're either moving forward or you're drifting backward. And that's why it's so important for everyone from 4 to 104 to be involved in Bible study. Every Christian needs to be reading and studying the Bible on their own. And if you don't know how, don't be proud. 
Don't be shy. Don't be afraid. Ask. Ask me. Ask Neil. Ask Mark. Ask a Sunday school teacher or a Bible study leader to help you get started reading the Bible. If you're interested in a plan for regular Bible reading, I've got a couple. I suspect Pastor Neil has way more than a couple. I checked over the weekend. Your iPhone has more than a couple. There's a lot of plans out there. So it's a new year. If you don't have the habit of daily personal Bible reading, this is the perfect time to start. And I just told you what you could do for the first four weeks. Read First John. This is the habit that will change your life if you don't have it already. It's also why it's important to be involved in a group Bible study, whether it's a Sunday school class or a Bible study during the rest of the week, because walking together, we do a whole lot better at walking in the same way Jesus walked than when we walk around on our own. When we walk around on our own, it is easy to lose focus. It is easy to get distracted. It is easy to walk in the wrong direction. When we walk as a group, our chances are much better. Will we make mistakes? <coughs> Sorry. Will we make mistakes in our walk? Absolutely. Will we mess up sometimes? Absolutely. But the good news is, we have the greatest defense attorney ever. So right living is not about being perfect. It is about striving to pattern our lives after the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, now that we've clarified what right living means, at least the entry point to what right living means, because I think truly understanding how he walked is the work of a lifetime, the third question is, why does it matter? Right? If we have the greatest defense attorney ever, why does it matter that we walk? like he walked. He can just, we can just keep sinning and he can keep forgiving. But that is not the point here. So John answers this question starting in verse 3. And by this we know that we've come to know him. Habitually obeying Christ's commandments is the thing that lets us know with certainty that we've come to know Jesus Christ. Now there are two uses of the word know here and I have a fear that this is going to start sounding like a stand-up routine because I'm going to keep using the word know a lot. So try and, try and follow, and I'll try and be as clear as I can. The first use of the word know relates to our knowledge of our personal situation, and it is describing an active and ongoing knowledge. So our pattern of obedience gives us an ongoing confidence that we can cling to even when we're in a season of dryness. And what is it that the verse says that we know? We know that we have come to know him. And the second know is a different, different verb tense, and it is describing something that's happened in the past <clears throat> that has ongoing effect in our life. Now John 17.3 says, and this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Right, So this knowledge that has ongoing effect in our life is salvation. It is our eternal life. And so what is the basis for the confidence that we have in that knowledge? It is our obedience to Christ's commandments. Right, so it doesn't matter how we feel. This is what lets us know. 
with certainty we have eternal life. By contrast, verse 4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Once again, keeping his commandments in this verse describes a pattern of behavior. So whoever claims to be a Christian but does not make a habit of obeying the commands of Christ is lying. He or she is lying to others, but more significantly, they are lying to themselves. I hope it's not the case, but it is possible that there are even people here in this room, people here every Sunday morning, but whose pattern of life the other six and a half days of the week indicates that they're lying to themselves because they don't really know the way of Jesus. They don't really know him in a way that leads to eternal life because the pattern of their life makes clear they don't. So as we examine the patterns of our behavior, we can determine if we genuinely know Jesus and can be confident in our salvation or or determine whether we're lying to ourselves. And this is not about testing our feelings. It's not testing about, do I feel closer today than I did yesterday? Because feelings change. It is about an objective review of the evidence of our lives. What does the evidence of our lives say about our relationship and our knowledge of Christ? Matthew 25 is probably one of the most terrifying chapters of the Bible if you are serious about your faith. Because it describes the shock that some people who claim to be Christians are going to experience when they find out they've been lying to themselves. But it does not have to be a terrifying passage for us. We don't need to be scared of it because John has told us how the pattern of our lives can give us unshakable confidence that we truly know Christ. We will know with certainty that we are saved, and as verse 5 tells us through this, our love for God is completed and perfected as we keep his word. And so we see again this, this idea of how our behavior, the keeping of the word, builds our love, our belief, our actions, our love. It's a cycle. It builds and strengthens and reinforces. Our faith becomes something that we can be very confident in. And that perfection occurs as we abide in Christ. Abiding is a huge word in John. He uses it a lot. Verse 6 indicates whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And abiding is admittedly a mysterious kind of concept. I can picture it and imagine it far better than I can explain it. But the significance of it is terribly important because John 15, 5 and 6 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered thrown into the fire, and burned. So as you can see, the stakes are tremendous. The pattern of our life does not save us. 
but it does reveal if we are saved. In obeying Christ's commandments, we can truly know that we have eternal life. By walking in the way that he walked, we tap into his unlimited power for living and serving the kingdom of God. Through him, we bear much fruit. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So examine yourselves this week. Spend time in prayer asking God to reveal to you the patterns of your life. If you have courage, ask a friend what the patterns of your life reveal. Do you walk in the way that he walked? If you're not walking in that way, then ask for God's help and for the help of godly friends. That's why we are a body of believers. Ask for help to walk as he did and to keep his commandments. And don't be discouraged by mistakes or setbacks because we have the greatest defense attorney ever. But strive to make the pattern of your living pleasing to God. And savor the fact that right living gives us confidence that we truly know Christ. Let's pray.